What, what was your first like job? I was a loan processor for a bank, like right before the financial bubble. Oh, you're one of those people. <laughs> yeah. It was a summer job. I filled in for someone on maternity leave while I was in college. Uh, but yeah. They they have this I've only heard a few of it, but they have this series on on some NPR thing. I'm sure it's like, you know, money fun with Kai Rizdal or whatever that show is. And uh, they have a series of of people who were working in finance in like late 2007 or something. And, uh, you know, you kind of know where the stories are going to go, but they're, they're always, they're always, uh, it's interesting to hear they're like all happy and then like, oh, and then that happened and, and how they, they've recovered from that. But yeah, yeah. how, how how was that? What did you do in that job? That's good. I just pushed paper really. So that was, that was my first like adult job where I was in an office and it was me and the guy who kind of originated all the loans from people and we processed second mortgages for people and I was just kind of the go-between between between the people who wanted more money and the underwriters who didn't want to give anyone more money and so (laughs) I had had a whole bunch of people who were mad at me all the time oh that's good that's good it's a fun one so so what what kind of what kind of sense does that give you about like how did how did that did that at all change how you think about like money and and how it relates to life doing that I think definitely starting out in the finance world was a, and I, I feel like it shaped my worldview a lot mm. in terms of that specific one. I think just understanding in particular that like people just like understanding the psychology of money and that I think is really what shaped me there. Mm. But yeah, because yeah. you know, you, the, the way you were describing it, it's kind of, it's kind of uh well, I mean, of course, you're being a little jokey about it, but but it is there is sort of this reluctance. Well, what, what am I trying to say? It's interesting to think about lending because because you know we or maybe maybe you lend money, but but we who are not banks, uh, we can sort of like think that we've got to like impress the bank and like you know we got to get money from them and it's kind of like an arduous process. But it seems like then on the other hand, you probably also have banks who are like, why can't I find people who are like. Uh, low enough risk to give a loan to like they might have some desperation as well to like find people to loan money out to and you know as you were saying there's sort of like resistance to just giving out free money and uh, I don't know I mean I guess I guess loans generate a large amount of uh, cash for banks and they must somehow have to like develop that market I, I mean, you know, yeah, you're, you're and I mean, there's just loans. so many different motivators like the, the guy I worked for directly was all about like he was paid on commission, so he was totally all about getting oh, right, right. loans through versus the underwriters who are all about the risk of the loans and trying to mm-hmm. assess that and the, the people who needed the money. and the, I mean, like everybody kind of has slightly different motivations coming into it. Yeah, yeah. You and think that's so a good... Not, it's, not just like, it's not just like the bank's motivation. Like there, there are individual motivations within the bank as well. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, why don't you give yourself... Uh, give yourself... Why don't you introduce yourself briefly? Oh, yeah, we should have maybe started with that. Hi, I'm Rachel Stevens, and I work with Red Monk as an industry analyst for software. Now, now I, uh, we had a little tiny podcast a long time ago, I think. I think, I think we were waiting for uh, James Governor to show up, and we just recorded something. I should have gone back to listen to that. But, oh, but no, nobody should ever go back to listen to that. And like, it's so <laughs> nice that you like invited me back after that. <laughs> <laughs> Oi. Well, I, I was I was reading one of your uh, your pieces from a while ago, sort of like five minute finance, and then uh, it was reminding me that I don't really understand how like numbers work. 
uh, and things like that. And so I thought I thought broadly, amongst some other things, that would be a fun a fun thing to talk to you about because I, I I think I think you know you understand how numbers work, or or at the very least, you can make them work better than I can. Like I don't really. I don't understand numbers. As as I like to tell people, that's why I like computers so much because they know how numbers work. Uh, along Thanks. with remembering everything, you can just rely on the computer for it. So, uh, and and then and then I, it seems like a wackadoodle question, I guess. But when I was reading through that, you're going over like uh, uh, there's a section on I don't know I forget if you call it ratios, but like the ratio of profitability and margins and all of this stuff. And it occurred to me that like there's some sort of like magic. To, and by magic, I mean I don't understand it. There's some sort of magic to ratios that 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 I don't quite get. Like I remember when I was working in M and A, more than occasionally, frequently people would throw around these ratios for things, and I didn't quite understand what they were doing. And I felt like every time I saw a rate, and I still feel like this. Every time I see a ratio, I feel like I need to find the original two numbers it's based on to understand what's happening. But people don't do that. Like they like ratios better. <laughs> and I guess I guess the one ratio I do understand is like a profit margin. Like that kind of makes sense. But you know, backing up, there's all these ratios that you get, and and, and I'll start with with an easy one, and then maybe you can explain to me how ratios work. But like you know, uh, oftentimes when you're cooking, uh, no one says that you take zero point two five of a cup to put something in there. They say a fourth of a cup. But I feel like in the finance world the forward slash doesn't really exist in numbers. So you're always like saying 0.25. And like, why, why is there this difference? Why, why would you choose one of those over the other? All right. There's a lot to unpack in there. So I would say a lot of it in terms of just the format of the ratio is going to be just the conventions around the particular numbers. So there's going to be some numbers like you talked about the balance sheet. So if, or sorry, not the balance sheet, the income statement mm. where we're comparing, basically you're saying how much revenue do I have and kind of how does that revenue decrease over, over the course of the spending. And those are almost always done as percentages because it's okay. So I, in the end I have 25% left of what my revenue was. You have things that are going to be like a PE ratio where um, you have a potential for it to be greater than one. And so it rather it doesn't really make sense to express as a percentage or a decimal. It's usually like a times ratio. So one point, whatever, or two point, whatever. So it, it kind of depends on the nat- nature of the numbers being compared. And then it's also just the convention of how we do it. Mm. No, no, that you you hit upon the one that's always that that's that's what would always uh, befuddle me is is the PE ratio, right? Which is, well, yeah. So, what is the PE ratio first of all? Yeah, so the PE ratio is one that we kind of look at in the stock market, and it's comparing the price of the stock to the earnings of the stock, which is like the earnings per share. And then, and then, what what, what do you do with that? Uh, people do all kinds of stuff with the PE ratio, but they're trying to figure out how the stock is valued. And um, I'm not going to lie. I'm really somebody who is a believer in low cost um, index funds. So I don't spend a whole lot of time looking at specific stock values, but it's something that you can kind of use to help gauge um, the value of the stock um, based off of how much earnings the company is actually generating. Yeah, because because it'll tell you so so the way let's see, the way you calculate it, I mean is it the 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 um the valuation of the company? That's 
the price, right? Or is or 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 do you have to do the thing where you get like earnings per share and then you match that up to the 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 stock price? Like how do what are the numbers that go into that? Yeah, so it's going to be the market price of their common stock divided by their earnings per share. Mm. So you're looking at a per stock price and a per stock earnings which, or which per, is, per share earnings, which is basically basically uh, the entire valuation of the, the the. You could do the reverse of that and find out how many shares there are and multiply that by the uh, by the uh, price per share, right? And that would give you, in theory, the total value of the company very simplistically and then you could take maybe like a year's worth of profit i don't know which earnings it is and then that would be that should give you the same pe number right when when you do that yeah i mean i guess if you want to do all that math you can also just look all those things up oh yeah, yeah no, no for sure for sure no and, and and then see that's another interesting mystery of convention is like so why do you do it on a per share basis instead of like the total basis of things? Because I, I mean, you get the same ratio. So, so whatever, but I always, I always think that like, and of course, as you say, you can look all this stuff up so it's easy, but like thinking about like revenue per share, and I guess that's, that's EPS, right? Earnings per share. Like that's another one that always weirds me out. And especially it's in like, um, I encounter this the most in like, for whatever reason, coverage of IBM. And they'll say like, this quarter's EPS was like 15 cents versus last quarter's EPS was 13 cents. And I always think like, that seems weird. Because like, what if they increase the total number of outstanding shares or, or they, they decrease them or, or like like whatever. Like it's a weird, like that seems like a weird data point to follow, but people do it so often that it must be useful yes so i think one of the things you touched on there and also in the beginning is like looking at the components of the ratio if you're trying to understand what's going on it's 100 percent a valid way to do it so the ratio itself is to give you comparability over time and then across the industry so you can look at a whole bunch of different things and kind of have as close to an apples to apples comparison as you can get but those component numbers that go into it and understanding what's driving the change is 100% like an important thing to look at. So it's you're you're not wrong in your desire to understand the components of the ratio. Like don't don't abandon that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And 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 I I guess I guess that's so so still getting back to the point of like what is a ratio? I mean it's it's some way of expressing the relationship between these two numbers. And then and then the more Let's see if I get this right. I'm really I'm really terrible at math. So like the closer you get to one in a ratio, the more the more the second number is is closer to the first number and vice versa, I guess, if I remember my uh, basic ancient Greek principles of math. But then I guess so then if the ratio like goes over one, that means am I doing this right? That means the first number is higher. And if it's like way under one, that means the second number is lower. So if you were like. I probably got that backward, but you could sort of quickly look at a ratio and be like, oh, one side of this equation is good is, is either high or really low. And that might give you a, a sense that give you a, a really quick gauge of something, uh, essentially. Yes. So let's go with numerator and denominator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see, to see I told you, I, I don't know how numbers work. They're very confusing uh, to me. Yeah. So the higher your numerator is compared to your denominator, the higher the ratio will be. Now, now is the numerator on the top or the bottom? Top. The top, top. See, I feel like in math, they should have just called it top and bottom. 
that, that would have been very simple. Maybe numerators like Latin or something, and, and we just got stuck with that. And if I looked up the Latin etymology, it would be like, you know, top. That's how you say yes. top. People are <laughs> always like, we would prefer to be on the numerator of this building because the view is better. <laughs> See, I don't know how numbers work. I was telling you. I'm very confused about them. But uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll go back to this. So so then so then let me let me let me close out this absurdist uh, on my part, like dealing with ratios by by asking. You know, th- this is this is another way of highlighting like the the weirdness of ratios to me, and that is that is the most magical financial number ever, as I understand it, which is uh, compound interest. Like I was, uh, I saw that like Jamie Dimon, and I don't understand fully why he would. This would be a warning. He was like. U.S. Treasury bills are going to be at 5%, so prepare for the apocalypse or something like that. I mean, I guess what that means is stock valuation would go down because if it's at 5%, you would stick your money in, uh, as they say, T-bills or something. But I don't wear suspenders, so I don't understand how that stuff works. But then I I went and looked up, you know, well, 5% is a great return. How do I get some of that? Which looked very complicated. Uh, And and then, you know, I went and did the compound interest. And if you had 5% over 30 years, I think you would like triple your money or something. And so it seems like saying that you're going to get a 5% return on something, uh, unless you know, like, how compound interest works, like that seems like it's way underrepresenting the return that you get, <laughs> right? Like, like so it's, it seems like an odd, an odd choice. Like, like if I were to tell you, uh, you know, I'm going to give you 5%, I'm going to give you 105% of this donut, that would be nothing to be excited about. But if I were to tell you I'm going to give you, you know, uh, four, you know, 400% of this donut, that would be something to be excited about. So, like, when you when you like, why do we express compound interest that way? Uh, again, there's a bit to unpack. There. <laughs> so, one thing to maybe be aware of is that the interest rate overall and the return that you're going to get on your investment are related, but they are not the same. So. Mm-hmm. The interest rate, um, as we typically talk about it, I, I believe as you put in your notes, the interest rate trademark is um, typically the Fed funds rate. And so what that means is the Federal Reserve has created capital requirements for banks and banks have to have a certain amount of money at the end of the day um, compared to how much money they've loaned out. And some banks have more than they need. Some banks have loaned a little bit more than they have in terms of their cash on hand. And so they do short-term, like uncollateralized lending overnight. And the Federal Reserve sets that interest rate of what banks lend to each other. Mm. And that's the interest rate. And then that interest rate affects everything else. So I mean, so it affects the rate at which um, banks will then lend to their customers. And then it affects, so if, if you think about like owning a bond, and you're getting 3% and all of a sudden the market rate goes to 4%, then all of a sudden my bond is looking less valuable. So my bond value goes down. If interest rates go up, maybe stocks are more risky and I can get a better interest rate using a less risky um, method of investing, in which case maybe my stock price changes. I mean, like it, it depends on which stock. And so it really c- can have kind of complex um, interactions throughout the economy, but that's kind of the the rate of it. But mm. the interest rate, as it's set by the Fed, and the rate of return on your specific individual investment, probably not the same thing. 
related yeah. but not the same thing. Um, so yeah, there's it, that. It, it's, it seems like with a lot of these questions I have, it's because my, uh, uh, as we would say in the programming world, my scope is different than the scope of other people's, right? Like, and, and, and I don't know, tell me if this is wrong, but it seems like uh, as an individual, maybe two of the fundamental things I don't really think about money in terms of is like, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? The, uh, the, the net present value of, uh, of cash. Like, I don't think about that cash is more valuable today than tomorrow. Like instead I think in 30 years I could quadruple my cash. And then, and then also I don't think about like for any given period of time, less than a year. Well, this isn't true, but like, let's say on a weekly basis, I don't necessarily think about maximizing the return on my cash. <laughs> so, so I'm happy to let things just stick there. But I guess as, as you're saying, like if you're obsessed with like the daily rate at which you can get a hold of cash to like cover all of your obligations as a bank, you think much differently about uh, cash and percentages than an individual would. Yeah, definitely. And so I, th I think the risk return ratio is something that um, everybody kind of takes into account in various degrees. So I, you might not think about it cognizantly because like, something that you are actively doing, but you, you do take that into account of what what is the possible return here and what is it going to cost me in terms of my time, in terms of the risk of the like interest rate being not high enough to cover um, inflation or risk of default. But, like, you probably do more of those back-of-the-head calculations than you realize. Um, banks do them very explicitly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's, a, it's a ton of their, their, their business, I suppose. Yeah, and I remember, I remember when, when, when I would do the uh, – thankfully, we had, like, MBAs who knew how to do all this stuff. But when we would do business cases for, uh, for acquisitions, it was always fun to see them calculate the um, – what was it? The uh, the IRR or whatever, which I think, what, what is that? What what does IRR stand for? Eternal rate of return. That's right. And my understanding of that, and tell me if I'm, I was wrong, was basically like, if we do nothing with this money, here's the money it will make just by like sitting in our bank account. Or, or like, here's like the lowest risk option we have for this cash. So I mean, that's sort of what IRR is, right? Or is it something different? Yeah, so IRR and yeah, so IRR and discounted cash flow are kind of um, neighboring concepts, but both of them are kind of looking at. So we look at what we project we can get from this investment, and then how much like, can can we get over hurdle rate of making so mm, IRR hurdle rate? They're always using hurdle. that word yeah. too. I like that hurdle. Yeah, it's a good time. And uh, but basically, it's just if we project how much we think this is going to earn over time does it does the potential return outweigh the risk of the investment right 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 yeah and and that that you know i always come up with these corny uh whatever uh laws if you will and or or sort of like heuristics and and the, in my mind i would always compare like acquisitions to like well what if we just started a check cashing business <laughs> like because that 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 <laughs> seems like an extremely profitable business and all you really need is a lot of money right like all you need is money to basically set up a shop do some marketing <laughs> and like buy some insurance for when you get robbed so like and and i think the the returns on that are probably to, you know, 1.5 to 2%, depending on what you charge. And then when you take the costs out 
And, uh, you know, that seems like a good business. <laughs> it's, it's a lot better than the grocery business, as far as I can tell. But, yeah, I mean, I mean it's sort of like, uh, uh, which I, that was one of the things I, I one the main thing I learned in uh, acquisition is, is like, basically, you're making a decision. And it took me a long time to get over this. You're not deciding like we would in the uh, the nerd world, like, is this a good technology? You're deciding like, this is a good use of our cash and, and the potential that we have. And that was, I don't know, it's a much different way to think about, uh, I don't know, like just looking at acquisitions and how businesses run and then like, I'm going to go to Hacker News and find what has the most upvotes. And then, uh, you know, Docker is going to be the hot thing, <laughs> but which, which always explains a lot of why these uh, very interesting, com- to me at least, why these interesting companies don't get acquired more just because it probably doesn't make sense to acquire them. Yeah, like opportunity cost of what to do with your money is, I, I think, definitely a key driver of hopefully your M&A strategy. But I think that we would all do a little bit better to think about opportunity cost of time. Like, I, I guess maybe I was just steeped in this worldview. And so it's more second nature to me to think about opportunity cost naturally. But it, it always surprises me when people don't, I guess. Yeah. What, what's, so, so, so what's an example of that where, where you would be doing, let's uh, like, you would be doing IRR in real life, <laughs> so to speak, in, in, a, in, a, in a more or less non-monetary way. I mean, I guess it, it's definitely less now that I don't work explicitly in finance, but that mm. just the, the general thought process and the kind of the way that I view the world is opportunity cost. So opportunity cost of time in particular is probably one of my bigger drivers now. So, it, and I think if you were looking at it from an engineering perspective, it would definitely be like your build versus buy analysis mm. would be an opportunity cost analysis. Like what, what is it going to cost me in dollars to buy this? What is it going to cost me in time and frustration and effort to build it? Can we kind of come to a logical conclusion about what decision makes sense right right and 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 i guess like like uh in one's personal well you were just alluding to it earlier right like there's uh i don't know if it's opportunity cost but it's sort of like it's probably a good idea to just like put your money in an index fund instead of spend a lot of your time like trying to like pick stocks and do all of that just because you want to kind of like delegate that to something more efficient than you doing it or you know pay someone to fold your laundry (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, yes. like th- those are the kind of uh, analyses that I always would, would like us to do is just like it. Uh, well, you know, it seems like it might be more profitable in my situation to pay someone to fold my laundry than to do it myself. And I remember, I don't know if, if uh, you know, since, since you work at Red Monk, like coincidentally, like the first time I started thinking about this is, uh, you know, when you work at Red Monk, like you can, uh, there's a rate at which you can bill out individual hours. And so I thought like, oh, well, that's how much of my time is worth an hour for lack of a better calculation. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 then, and then that was like, it kind of gave me a new view on like folding laundry. It was like, can I do this cheaper than, uh, I think at the time, uh, you know, you can reverse engineer the startup pack, which is like, at least at the time it was, you got 20 hours of Red Monk time for $5,000 over a year. And uh, you'll have to check my math, but I think that's $500 an hour. And so as long as something was uh, less than $500, I should probably outsource it in my life. Now, of course, the flaw was that assumed that I was actually working instead of folding laundry. Yeah, that that assumes a 100% 
billable ratio, which is <laughs> perhaps not entirely accurate. Exactly. But also, I, I like that. And especially as I've become a parent, like the number of problems that I am willing to solve by throwing money at them has just increased mm. exponentially. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Just, just trying to get through the day sometimes. Just like, uh, I, I could try to add that to my list, which is like always growing and is massive or i could pay somebody to help me with that and my, like my my time math has definitely changed this mm. last so so how do, how do you think about like that that idea like like this this hits on another point is like i always find uh the concept of money is sort of like this uh you know there's that nietzsche quote that like if you, you got to be careful because if you stare into the abyss too long it stares back into you and i feel like the uh the ontology, the meaning of money is like that. Like the more you think about it, the more it gets confusing. And you're, you're just kind of hitting on it there is like in some way you, in, in what you're saying, you're using money as a way to drive a decision. <laughs> like like it's kind of like a numeric way of putting judgment in into things. And and like how I don't, I don't know, like do you find that like in that kind of thinking, like you're just using money as sort of like arbitrary numbers to evaluate if you should hire someone or not? I mean, yeah. I, I also think that this is an area that I have evolved a lot. So I think the, the quote you provided was very apt and one that I had to learn. So going through like early in our marriage and I was all about like maximizing the return on our like retirement accounts mm. and all these things. And we're going through and like uh, my poor husband had to go through like variance analysis with me month by month. <laughs> like, I would go through and I'd like apply my work oh, logic nice. and standards yeah. to home. And we both quickly realized that like this was not going to be a happy marriage if I was the one who was in <laughs> charge of all of that. And so Devin is next, actually now the one who does all of our day-to-day -day finance. And I kind of come in like, quarterly maybe and kind of mm. like, get myself oriented you have like you have like a board meeting hopefully at a nice location yes, you just we weigh do, in we do board meetings um actually we legitimately call them board meetings that's <laughs> so, <laughs> a secret for the internet <laughs> to now know about our marriage but yeah so get ourselves kind of up to speed on what everyone else is doing kind of divided out but like we found that you you can't over orient to this because otherwise you just become curmudgeonly and mm. terrible. Yeah, so. no, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's 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 you know you, I, I I suffer from that same issue or the same thing, and I'm sure everyone in a relationship is like this. Is there there hopefully there's some name for it, but there's a uh, there there's a set of of skills or tools that you have in your work life. And and you try to apply them in your home life, and you realize that's not allowed. <laughs> like like that's that's not a good idea. Like I th I think the way I used to think about this back when I was doing programming is like uh, you can't have a kanban board for your wedding. Like that's probably a bad <laughs> suggestion to make. <laughs> like and, unless there's like two highly agile oriented programmers, it's just it's just not going to go well. And then, and then the other, I don't know if you, you have this, uh, this, this thing being in like, you know, the analyst, uh, big brain world, but it's sort of like, you know, uh, you, you can't sort of like fire up your browser without like reading the cognitive bias of the day. And, uh, it's, it's, it's really not a good thing to say like, well, you know, uh, we shouldn't stay here longer because have you heard of the fallacy of sunk costs? Like just because we've been here 30 minutes doesn't mean <laughs> we can't just leave all of a sudden. 
And, and that, again, that just doesn't, doesn't result in, in good stuff. And it's difficult even to think about it because it sounds like I'm being all pedantic, but it's really just like, uh, you know, nerds don't know how to apply stuff to real life or something along those lines. Yep. And see, it's not just engineering nerds, it's finance nerds and all the other nerds. All, all the nerds have the same problem. Yeah. yeah. Different flavors. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, you know, to just as a minor footnote, I always think, uh, I, I long, long ago, I read that book, uh, Lords of Strategy. And it was, it was, they know they, the author like pointed this out, but it's, it's, uh, I, I think you're not supposed to say notable, but it's, it's, it's noticeable that most of the founders of the big uh, management consulting firms like started out as engineers. And so there's this theoretic historic view that like basically what they did is they applied systematic engineering to the world of business, which is kind of a potentially explains a lot, <laughs> but, but it's yeah. an interesting, interesting. Uh, heard that, but makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So on a, on a, on a somewhat different topic. So you had a, uh, you, you had a write up, basically this podcast is just me asking you a bunch of questions. Uh, and and monologuing before I let you uh, answer them, if you can't tell. So it's my patented technique. Uh, but uh, you know, you had a, you had a write up of like for 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 the younger people, I think, how to do interviews, and it was it was uh, very thorough. And I thought I, I liked it a lot because a lot of them, a lot of the uh, answers to things were like uh, pragmatic in the sense of like, here are the things you should say, <laughs> or like, what what was some of them? It was like. Uh, uh, and actually, you, you provided the the most the the best answer to the most confusing thing is like they're always like, "Tell me about your weaknesses." And and everyone, of course, always says that you can't say, "Well, my weakness is I'm just too hard of a worker." Uh, but you know, I, I think the example you had it was good in there, where it was basically like, uh, I, "I can be shy at first, right?" And so I need to uh, you know I need to like build up that relationship with people. But the, one of the ones I, that you didn't have listed on there, and I think this happens a lot with uh, programmers, is like, so, you know, you got, you've, had your, uh, you've had your few interviews in the morning, and then, and then they're going to take you out to lunch. And what is it, if I'm an oh, interviewee... you're right. I didn't get that. What, okay. What, what, what am I doing there at lunch? What are the, okay. what, what, what's the practical answer? The practical answer is that you are not there to eat. So, <laughs> like, you, you eat enough to be polite, but, like, your job is not to get yourself full do- during this meal. Your job is to, like, interact with the people around you. Mm. And so um, one thing is to kind of follow people's lead um, in terms of what they're ordering. Try not to order first if you can. And, like, if the waiter comes to you first or, like, if you're going through the school cafe, like, try, try to kind of follow along. Um don't, don't pick the most expensive thing. Don't pick the cheapest thing. Um, don't order alcohol would be my suggestion, even if they do. <laughs> <laughs> so go like iced tea or something. Um, and I would say that, yeah, just try to try to be social. Um, try, try to focus on still being personable and still being but like you're, the goal is to be relaxed, but still professional. Does that help? I don't know. I feel like I just kind of rambled there. No, no, no. That 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 makes a lot of sense. And 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 should you be expecting like you know an hour or like how do you? I mean, I I, I like your answer. You're sort of like just following the lead of people. I always think you know what popped into my mind was like just pay attention to how packs of dogs work. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and and like and don't don't try to achieve alpha status. Just try to be part of the pack. Yeah. So you've got you've got to kind of show that you can uh, go along with. Yeah. Things. Try try to try to be your 
mirror their behavior mirroring because people perceive mirrored behavior to be mirrored value sharing mm. so just kind of try to try to follow their lead try try to make it seem like you naturally fit into the group because they're trying to judge for like social cohesiveness so try to demonstrate that hmm. so so if you were and maybe you have done this but if you were if you were interviewing someone to like be an analyst or maybe even at red monk what what would you be looking for what would you what would you ask them and and have them do so i think a lot of what i look for is how people think and how people act like so, so looking for how you think and then like who you are as a person so trying to let those things shine and how you do that in various settings depends but i am a big believer that you can teach a lot of skills to people on the job you can't really change who they are as a person so mm. looking for integrity i'm looking for someone who can say they don't know the answer to something um, i'm looking for someone who can be gracious in not knowing so i will probably ask you a question that is hard to have a knowable answer to that has some ambiguities and then see how you think and work through that. Mm. I think that's important. That's the old, uh, I always get the name wrong, but the Star Trek thing, the, the Kabayashi Maru or whatever, like successfully completing the thing isn't what the goal is. It's just seeing how you, you deal with thinking through it, essentially. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm not one of those people who is a super hardball interviewer. Like I, I want to convey that I am a nice colleague to work with because I, I do believe that it is equally you interviewing me as me interviewing you. So I'm not going to be a mm. jerk about it, but I do want to put you in a spot where you have to think on your feet a little bit. Oh yeah. There, there was the other advice that you had uh, that was really good is like, I, cause I, I have never come up with a good, a good answer to the, the final question you always get is, do you have any questions for me? And, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know what my deal is, but I'm just like, no, I would just like to get out of here. <laughs> like I, I have no questions at all. And, and, uh, but you actually like the list you had was, uh, was pretty useful. So like, what are, what are, uh, well, let, let, let me put a slight twist on it. So say you're interviewing someone, right. And you ask them that question. Like, what do you, what do you think some, some interesting positive questions they might ask would be? What would you evaluate them highly for the question, for a question that they asked? So I think throughout the course of the interview, whether it's at the end or at the beginning, you want to you want to get a sense for the team you'll be working with, the projects you'll be working on, and the company you'll be working in. So talk to me about, like, so if you're leaving and you don't feel like you have a good understanding of those things, I as an interviewer would be sad. And hopefully I give you those things throughout the course of the interview, but you, sh you should have an understanding of what you'd be working on, what your day would be like. Like like the size of the team, um, kind of the structure of the team. How would you be trained to do the position well? Like what are the challenges of the position that they think are going to be the biggest things that you need to address? Like those kind of things, I think not only are signs of like feeling really engaged in the interview, but also just feeling like you're invested in wanting to work in the job. So mm. like ho hopefully you feel that level of excitement about like understanding the position you'd be tackling. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that that was one of the questions that I the questions for the interviewer that I thought was good is like, tell me about the team I'll be on. And maybe it's just like the nature of my work for a long time has been I'm not on a team, so I don't think about that. Well, I shouldn't say I'm not on a team. I don't work a lot with a team. Uh, I'm I'm in sort of like a hierarchical management chain team, but not really a, 
a team that works together. But yeah, that, that would have been really nice to know going in <laughs> to several jobs in the past. Like, uh, how are these people? Are they going to yell at me or, or make my life easier? Which, which is a nice thing to suss out. So, so then another, another thing that you write about a lot is like, uh, valuing data, which, you know, I think even back when I was at Red Monk, like, uh, Stephen would write a lot about this and and James would talk about it as well. But this idea of like data is the new, whatever valuable metaphor, or like, it's a valuable thing to build up. And, uh, I, you know, I, I guess, I guess a lot of the social, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but figuring out how to value data has there's some interesting benchmarks and in like, I don't know, companies like CoreLogic that basically are data companies and then closer to like the world of finance and stuff like Capital IQ and Thomson Reuters are like pure data companies in some way. Uh, but then you have like Google and Facebook, which would seem to give you a novel way of valuing data. And so I wonder, you know, just skipping over the the sort of uh 101 stuff of what does it mean to value data and how you do it like as as companies you know like like in recent i don't know the past month like i think the value of like facebook has gone down and so like does that freak people out who are like valuing data like because it seems like a very fragile thing uh to base the value of of your company on yeah i i think that's fair. I think it's still so unknown. And from an accounting perspective, like in terms of putting a numeric value on it, we're nowhere close to being ready to having a way to do that. And uh, I have a piece that I've written that we could maybe link to or something where it kind of walks through all of the current problems with our accounting limitations in terms of just kind of understanding the value of the business. Like, one of the things that um, my colleague Steve says a lot is like you can make up a lot of ground um, in terms of software and kind of development. You, it's really hard to make up ground in terms of data. And so I think that from that perspective, it is 100% of a driver of how to build successful businesses if you're building a database business. On the other hand, I think we've seen plenty of examples just this year of how it is a liability and how it can very much harm you if it poses security or privacy risks. And so I think that we as an industry are still very much wrestling with how to balance those two concepts. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, as, as you say, it's still like early on in figuring that out, but it, man, it always seems like there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, you know, back back when I was at Red Muck and we would think through it, it seemed like it seemed like how you use data as or data, however you want to say it, as as like a flavoring to your business was more comprehensible <laughs> as far as valuing it. That if you had all this extra data about, uh, I don't know, how to optimize the way a server runs, uh, then the way you would put that into your, your sort of like capacity management software would, would give some new value to what you had. But I don't know. And on the other hand, like in that case specifically, like then public cloud, you know, cloud computing came along and just computing became so cheap and managed by someone else that who cares? <laughs> so, so it just sort of like ruined any uh, theoretic value there. 
Well, so so wrapping up, every now and then I, I have enough time to do uh, some sort of like little little tiny questions at the end of the podcast. And, uh, you know, I totally steal it from this other podcast that I like. But I actually haven't written a list of them. So we'll see if I can come up with some if, if, if you just want to, like, give your take on some things uh, really quickly. And so the, the first one. Okay, so, like, just hot takes? That's yeah, what we're sure, for? sure. Well, it's, it's just okay. sort of like, what, what, what do you think about this? Just give me, give me like, the, uh, you know, the, it's not an elevator pitch, but, you know, we're, we're on the subway and you're about to get off. But I want to know what you think about this one thing. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, how about, you know, over here they have, uh, they've got muesli. I don't really know what that is. But how how would you would you rather have like yogurt with muesli in it or granola or are you going to eat yogurt on its own? How how are you going to eat that? Probably with the muesli. And and why is that? What do you what do you like about that? So I studied abroad one semester mm. and I was in Belgium, but I didn't speak French or Flemish. And so I had to get by with very limited communication skills. And so I went for the things I could recognize by sight and usually was actually one. I see. So it's kind of comforting. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about, I mean, you know, as a follow up, how about, how about Flemish? What's your take on that? Um, it was easier to sight read in terms of similarity to like English looking words, mm. um, but harder for me to try to get by in terms of listening. Yeah. You know, I, I feel and, and when it comes to uh, maybe Flemish, definitely Dutch and German, I don't know about the Nordic languages, definitely not Finnish, which is its own language. But it seems like there's an opportunity lost in American schooling to be like, hey, maybe you should learn a little bit of German, right? Like, like I think maybe they should throw out this whole Latin fantasy that they seem to, at least in my days, they <laughs> seem to have and be like, mm, English is a lot more like German. So you should, you should learn a little bit of German because it certainly seems like uh, even, even with a lot of Dutch words, uh, which seems like an incredibly foreign language like you can kind of pick your way through them every now and then just just by looking at it but uh, i hadn't really thought about how similar english is to german be, be a nicer yeah, thing that's, to, to learn that's a good point i hadn't thought about that till now i live in colorado so i feel like people in colorado should learn spanish but well sure german, german is yeah. a good second choice now there's definitely that i mean you know in in uh, in the south or i guess so you call it the southwest if if you throw texas in there it's always very well there you know spanish is is much better which which i think brings us to another thing so when we say Southwest, should Texas be in there or not? Texas is its own thing. Mm. That's yeah. a good answer. I agree with that completely as a Texan. <laughs> and, then, and then speaking of the Southwest, I mean, you're, you're in Denver, right? Yes. So, so is it true that there's something weird about the Denver airport that like tinfoil hat people get all worked up about? There's something strange going yeah, on there, in there, right? There's all kinds of conspiracy theories about that and i'm not gonna lie i haven't really paid a ton of attention to them i'm in that airport all the time so i probably should but yeah there we'll have to ask the internet for that i'm sure we can get all kinds of conspiracy theories and then, and then what do what do uh what do residents of denver call themselves uh, i think denverites denverites not, gonna, not i would have gone for denver i mean colorado i don't know i i haven't really identified myself as based in the city because you got it you're you're a coloridian is that right it's Coloradan. Coloradan. Oh, that's good. I like that. Yeah. So, so basically, what you're telling me is that the Denverites or the Denveronians, as as the case may be, <laughs> not not into the the airport conspiracies. Don't even notice it. 
I, I feel like we have enough conspiracy theories going around right now to add airports to the list. So I, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I haven't spent a ton of time there. Now, now how, about, how about if you – so, you know, going up to the Pacific Northwest, and then I suspect here in Amsterdam and probably today since it's finally cooler here, uh, what, what, about, what about like beaches where you have to like wear a jacket? Like what, what, are you into that or would you rather go to a beach that's like hot? I guess, I guess I don't really care one way or the other. Mm. I'm, I don't, I don't like when the sand sticks to me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, that's that. That was always my problem with beaches, especially when I was young. It's, it's, they feel they felt very gross, and it was only it's only like uh, in the last ten years that I think I've finally gotten over that. Like they can actually See, be pleasant. I, maybe I just I, I come from a landlocked state, so maybe I just haven't spent enough time there. So mm. I, I think I'm still undecided. Hmm. Yeah, now that makes sense. Well, then, since here's 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 my final my final question, and this is the ongoing concern. And and you know, since since you uh, you you got some some kid stuff to to be drawing on, so what do you what do you think we should do about kids playing on their iPads? Like, is is it good? Is it bad? Should we just let it be two hours or eight hours? Like, what? Uh, how do you how, how do you, how should we deal with that? I don't know how I'm supposed to do this one. Like my my daughter's still not one yet, so we haven't had to fight this battle yet. Mm-hmm. But I'm really nervous about this one because I don't know. I, it feels like a very different world than the world that I grew up in. In terms, of, so I, I don't really have any personal experience on which to base this. But I know that I know that I don't want to be crazy and dogmatic, and I also know that I don't want her to just like sit there and watch YouTube recommended videos. So hopefully there's some kind of middle ground in there, (laughs) but uh, how one finds that we have not yet had that adventure yet. Well, well that, that, that brings a follow-up question that I think about a lot since you mentioned YouTube videos. So what do you think there's a difference uh, in sort of like mind development between uh, having the patience and then enjoyment for like lengthy narratives versus just like, here's a bunch of like five minute videos of someone like building Legos or playing a video game. Like, do you think, do you think those are the same or there's a difference between the two of them as far as like how your brain is affected? From the studies I read, it does seem like there's a difference, but again, not, I'm not an expert there, but hopefully we can get to a point where we still have the ability to focus for long periods of time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, this topic is very troubling for me because then I I take the, um, let's say guidance to use an overly nice word, (laughs) the guidance I try to give my son and, and increasingly my daughter about screen time. And if I were to reflect that on me, I don't think the results would be good. (laughs) Like, like basically my job, I don't think so at all. Yeah. My job is like staring at a screen. And then when I'm not at my job, like I read books on a screen and then I read other stuff and then it's just like, I don't, mm, so it's very difficult. Like, and I, and I, I don't want to have that parental arrogance of like, well, it's fine for me because I know how to deal with it or something like that. So it's, it's a very, I'm very conflicted about what to do about it. I think one of like for really young kids, the guidance is like no screen time till they're two, and we're mm-hmm. we're mostly trying to do that. I mean, sometimes I just need ten minutes of Sesame Street, and you know that's <laughs> <laughs> I just need to sit down for a second. But I think that the thing that's great about the no screen time rule is that like she is like 
a moth to a flame when it comes to a screen in her vicinity. Like she loves them. And so it really curtails my screen use around her because mm. I um, like trying to limit screen time for her, limit screen time for me. And I think that makes me more present, which is good. And so I, I think there are, there is definitely a two way street in mm. terms of trying to, trying to limit screen time for her and making me a better person, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. I, I've been thinking about this week as well for the past month. Cause you know, we, we had to pack up our entire house and, uh, and sell it and get rid of stuff, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then you got to move here and we didn't bring our entire house at all with us. I mean, speaking of ratios, I think we brought like, uh, you know, 0.1 of our house. <laughs> One over, over 10. Yeah. There, there you go. Like a, a 10th or maybe even less. But, uh, but then you got to unpack all this stuff and figure out where it goes. So, uh, and you know, our kids were not raised on a farm, so they don't like actually know how to, um, help <laughs> with anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet on the one hand, they, they, you know, they're, they're kids. They're, they're, as one of my friends said, they're just, you know, tiny play machines. And so they want to play with us and hang out with us. So you got to give them something to occupy their time. And then, and then there you go. You're watching, uh, you're watching, um, you know, YouTube videos or whatever, but, but it, it does sort of bring to light that there's a, um, a challenge with screen time, which is like, well, uh, you got to come up with something, uh, for them to do. So they're not bored or, or, you know, like you, it's, it's, it's kind of a challenge as a parent to figure out what you would do because you got to unpack all this stuff. So you can't like actively manage them doing something. And then you can't like send them into the streets to like, you know, get a stick and like play that push the wheel thing along. Like, like I guess you used <laughs> to be able to do. So it's just, uh, it's, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess you could go back to the thing and you got to hire a babysitter, but like, then you got to find a babysitter. <laughs> like Netflix is a way cheaper babysitter than an actual babysitter. Mm, the e-babysitter. Um, <laughs> I, I would have to say there is, what was the phrase that season for everything or whatever it is and i think the season of like internationally moving and having to unpack your whole house just means that like you get some extended technology time oh there you go i like I, that I, I, I think you're okay <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah you know I, I i heard i heard that there was a a study i always get this number wrong but that that if you're worried about ruining your kid you know in your your upbringing practices you only have to get it right a third of the time i don't know what that means but like, you know, you can screw up two thirds of the time and things will come out fine. I don't know how you would study that. Yeah. It's, pro it's probably like there's some room with cameras and like, you know, blocks that get moved <laughs> around and, and then people derive all these whack-a-mole things about all of life. But, but, uh, I think that's good guidance. It might've been the other way around. Okay. Well, I like that's a little bit like the old, the, the marketing quip though. It's like 50% of my marketing <laughs> budget is effective. I just don't know which 50%. And I think that this might be one of those times. That's good. I, I've never thought of applying that to parenthood, but I think that's perfect. <laughs> like 50% of my parenthood works, parenting works and the other doesn't. I just don't know which half. I th yep. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, I just got some, uh, some, as they say, real time feedback from my wife. And she says these, these, uh, these red spots that my kids had. I think we were talking about this before recording, are definitely mosquitoes because oh. like seven just came out of the curtains, which, oh. so oh, maybe, maybe that's no. a relief, but okay, they don't. Okay, that's a relief, but also mosquitoes in the house is never that yeah. great of an answer to the problem. Well, yeah, it's true. It's true. And, and the reason is like here in Amsterdam, they don't have uh, window screens 
And, and so if you want to open the windows and the doors, there's no screens and like, you know, there's really nice weather. So you want to get all the cold stuff coming in because mm-hmm. we don't know any better, but, uh, you know, but, but then on the other hand, as I was saying, the mystery is the, the, we, we spent some time in New Zealand. <laughs> like, why do other countries not have screens? I know. And is they this all, only a U.S. thing? They, they all have, uh, every other country has, has these weird handles on the windows, right? Like uh, they had those in New Zealand, right? Where there's a handle, an actual handle that locks it. And uh, we, I don't think we have that in the U.S. And it's it's one of those things where, like, um, you know, what's the old saying about about like if uh, if you're sitting at a gambling table and you don't know who the uh, I don't forget it you don't know who the idiot is it's probably you and so yes. it's making me think that the U.S. is the one that has really weird windows. <laughs> it's not everywhere know. else. I think screens are a good one though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there's one. So we're we're in this we're in this. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's a very, very typical Amsterdam architecture, but all, all of the buildings on this block, they come together to make a courtyard and there's no exit from it. It's very much like, uh, if you ever seen that movie, uh, rear window, you know, where Jimmy Stewart's out there watching, oh, yes. it's like That's exactly exciting. like that. And so I've looked around and I think there's one house out of, let me do a quick estimate here. Maybe, maybe 50 of them that has, has screens on it. And maybe I was just imagining that, but all the rest of them. And I've also noticed no one actually opens up their windows very much. So they must think that we're super weird for opening our windows mm. all the time. But anyways, the, you know, okay. the, 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 the encouraging thing is that I haven't gotten any of these bites. So maybe the mosquitoes here aren't, aren't interested in me. So being completely selfish, uh, things must be coming <laughs> into my favor. Yeah, sacrifice your children to the mosquito gods of... Amsterdam. <laughs> That's right. Well, so well. First of all, thanks for being on. It was uh, it was fun, delightful. I think I understand numbers a little bit better, and I'm still flummoxed by uh, EPS and all these things. But I'll figure it out one day. It'll it'll all make sense. It will. Or you can just rely on the people who care about it for a living and not worry about it, which I think is a totally fair answer. Yeah, I I, I, li- I liked your your uh, your your summary answer at the beginning, which is invest in index funds. I think that's basically the answer to about f- the answer to any financial question for ninety nine percent of the population. <laughs> Just index funds. Agreed. <laughs> that's all you need to know. <laughs> don't don't give your banking password to people and index funds. Those are yes. the two things. Uh, what, but if people want to, uh, I don't know, look up several of these things we mentioned, other things you write about, or, or find you otherwise online, where where should they go? Yeah, come. So I have a lot of posts about finance-related things at RedMonk, so redmonk.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at rstevensme. That's R-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-M-E. Very good. And and they're all uh, – every now and then you do the uh, a numbers post, which is fun. I, I always enjoy, like, numbers-related things. Those, those are uh, fun to look through. Well, with that, this has been another uh, episode of Software Defined Interviews. We haven't done them in a long time or a while, but I, I was just talking with my co-hosts, and we have like three in, three in plans. Three in plans? We've got three or so planned out, so there'll be a little spate of them. And then maybe we'll just go back to not doing them for a while. But if you want to uh, look up the full show notes for this, you go to softwaredefinedinterviews.com, and we got all sorts of stuff over there. You can join a Slack channel. There's a little newsletter that sends out our other podcast thing, all sorts of exciting stuff. You can even buy a T-shirt and get some stickers if you're interested in that. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Yeah. Oh, there's also this. I got this arm in here that uh, – let me put a marker in here.
edit this before. I, I have one of those little, uh, uh, not opposable, like flexible arm mic holders, and it's got these mm-hmm. springs on it. So it makes like, it's like that tube that kids have with springs in it that makes like space noise. Oh, it does sound like space noise. <laughs> I like it. We're in outer space now. All right. I don't, I don't know what to do with this thing. And maybe it'll just go up and down. We'll see what happens. 